Well, brothers and sisters, good morning and welcome. You may have a seat. My name is Chris Gomes, and I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and I am so glad to be uh, with you all together uh, today. It is arguably one of the greatest sequels of all time. So somebody got it right. Someone's been paying attention in our uh, sermon series through the book of Esther. So having traveled into the grim future of 2015 and back to the future too, our heroes Marty McFly and Doc Brown discovered a nightmarish landscape. In this dark future, Marty learns that his home of Hill Valley has become a lawless dystopian wasteland where the thugs and hooligans run rampant, all because in this dark future, the despicable bully Biff Tannen is now ultra-rich and ultra-powerful. Now, I don't want to spoil the movie for you. It is uh, one of my favorite movie trilogies. But Marty quickly learns how his family's fortunes and the residents of Hill Valleys have changed for the worse, while Biff's fortunes have changed for the better. All because of a misplaced sports almanac from 2015. So to change his family's fortunes and to fix his future, and the future of all those who reside in Hill Valley, Marty learns he has to go back to the past. Back to the Future 2 is just one of many stories centered around the idea of changing fortunes. So we know we're gripped by a powerful story when we wonder how will any good come from this situation. And we have a couple of extra kids in the room this morning. Kids, after church this morning... I want you to ask your parents what it means that God works all things together for good. So ask mom and dad, what does it mean when the Bible says God works all things together for good? And there's a second thing that I want to encourage you to do. I want you to tell one friend about how God works everything in our lives for good. Now, if you have questions about that, you can come see me after the service, but I want you to ask your parents what it means that God works all things together for good, and then I want you to tell one friend, and it can be any friend, about how God works everything in our lives for our good. So, last week in our study through Esther chapters 5 through 7, we came to the climax of Esther's story. So what we saw was, in a perfectly timed execution, Queen Esther revealed Haman's wicked plot and identified Haman as an enemy to the throne. So Haman uh, was hanged on the gallows that he had built for his own enemy, Mordecai, and we saw Haman's fortunes changed for the worse. And we were left wondering how the Jewish people would survive Haman's lasting wicked edict. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Esther chapter 8. We're going to spend uh, most of our time today in Esther chapter 8, and we're going to look at half of Esther chapter 9. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, maybe you're new to reading the Bible 
Uh, you can use the black pew Bibles that are in front of you uh, simply by turning to page 488. The large numbers are, are the chapter numbers and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Now, as we work our way through chapters eight, uh, chapter 8 and half of chapter 9, we're going to observe two scenes. So kids, in your time uh, with mom and dad in the room today, you'll find it very helpful if you listen for these two scenes, a plan for deliverance and a spectacular victory. Now, let's turn our attention to our first scene in Esther chapter 8, a plan for deliverance. The word of God says, and on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told uh, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So in these opening verses in chapter 8, we are shown the final conclusion to Haman's part in the story. So King Xerxes bestowed the house of Haman. All that means is that he gave the property and wealth that belonged to Haman over to Queen Esther. Because it was Queen Esther who was the primary individual wronged in the king's court. Now, what we're going to see through Esther chapter 8 and chapter 9 are stunning reversals that we saw in the beginning of Esther's story. So, for example, in chapter 2, Esther, or, uh, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the royal crown. Now, we are seeing in chapter 8, Xerxes giving her Haman's house. And we're shown a stunning reversal in verse 2. You remember Mordecai? You remember the work that Mordecai had accomplished way back in uh, Esther chapter 2? Mordecai, we're seeing in Esther chapter 8, is finally rewarded for his loyalty to the king from so many years ago. So Mordecai was the one who saved the king's life. And providentially, his work of saving the king's life was overlooked. But providentially, the king could not sleep one night, and then he learns that it was Mordecai who saved the king's life from the assassination plot. But whereas chapter 3 began with Haman being promoted and Mordecai overlooked, now, in chapter 8, we're shown Haman overlooked, in a sense. And Mordecai honored with all the power and authority that was previously held by Haman. And what's really interesting is when you see the small image of the king taking off his signet ring that belonged to Haman and him giving it to Mordecai, what you see is that the honor and prestige that once belonged to the wicked Haman now belongs to the honorable Mordecai. But the story goes on in verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him, to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, 
let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. Verse 6. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Now, some of us in this room have not uh, heard what Haman's wicked plan was. So, do you remember what Haman had devised? Because he perceived a uh, disrespectful act by Mordecai by not standing to give Haman honor, Haman decided that he would cleverly manipulate the king to wipe out his enemies, which you would think was just Mordecai. But his evil, wicked, prideful heart wanted to see all of Mordecai's people wiped out. So he devised this wicked plot. He had it set in motion. He even cleverly uh, devised a way for the king to give approval. And so this edict is out. The news has been delivered. And so Esther is pleading before the king, please write a new edict that will revoke the old one. But what's interesting in Esther's plea is she's been king or she's been queen in this uh, up to this point in the story for at least five years. So you would think that she understands how the inner machinations of the kingdom and empire of Xerxes works. Meaning, you would think that she knows the king's edicts cannot be revoked. The Persian custom was that once the law was written, it is absolute. It cannot be revoked. So it's interesting that Esther pleads that the law would be revoked. And notice, she pleads not only in a legal sense, she pleads from a moral and emotional sense. Verse 6, for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Do you notice the tension in Esther's appeal to the king? Up to this point in the story, the text and the author has not shown us that Esther is a moral character who is worthy of imitation and following. There is nothing in the text that demonstrates that Esther has been a devout Jew her entire life, particularly in her tenure as queen of Persia. We are not meant to believe that. But what she does in this passage is she identifies with the Jewish people, maybe not because of her religious convictions, but because of her ethnic identification. These people that Haman has targeted, they're not just any ordinary minority people group that you, king, should ignore. This is my ethnic people group of whom I am a part of. For Esther, salvation for herself alone was not enough if the rest of her people would be annihilated. See, it makes for a good story if you were the sole surviving member of your race from a planet that exploded a long time ago and you were raised in the middle of Kansas and you have the powers of a god and you can fly and you can beat up all the bad guys and save Metropolis. But it doesn't mean much when you are left powerless when you uh, have uh, been manipulated and taken advantage of, and everyone around you has been taken from you, and you are the last sole member of your race. All hope would hang on the king's response to his wife's desperate plea for help on behalf of her people. 
I want to read verse 6 for you again, because all this week as I've been meditating on and reflecting on this passage, verse 6 has to some degree haunted me. I was in the hollers and mountains of southern West Virginia, which was absolutely beautiful, and I could not stop thinking about the story of Esther. I want to read verse 6 to you again. She says, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Some of you may not know, but I hail from the beautiful subcontinent of India. And I grew up in the world's most influential city, New York. There's a little part in New York called Jackson Heights. Uh, Maybe you've seen uh, the movie Washington Heights that really celebrated Puerto Rican culture. Jackson Heights will celebrate Indian culture. It's literally known as Little India. Uh, There's about a million of brothers and sisters who look like me in Jackson Heights, in in New York, in the heyday. There's about 22 million people. So in Jackson Heights is where I grew up. And what's really interesting is when you travel through New York City, there are pockets of immigrants who've literally basically just taken over parts of the city. It really doesn't even look like people have assimilated into the culture because there's a microcosm of their home culture in a part of New York City. And so where I grew up, it literally looked, smelled, and tasted like India. In 2012, I had the honor and pleasure to travel back to my homeland of West Bengal, to Kolkata, India, Now, for some of us, the name of Kolkata might sound familiar because of Mother Teresa, right? But that's where my mom grew up. Uh, I have cousins who live in Kolkata right now. My 80-something-year-old grandmother is in that city right now. And in 2012, I had the opportunity to go back. But what's interesting was I left India as a young child. I was like one or two years old. I wasn't a Christian then. This was my first time going back, but this time I was a completely different person. This time... I wasn't a young child desperately in need of his mother's help. I was a grown man who knew Jesus Christ. And so I had the opportunity to go back to India and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to my people, to my kindred. And what was really interesting was brothers and sisters who looked just like me, they wondered, hey, you look just like us, but you sure don't sound like us. There's a bunch of funny stories that come with that that I'll spare us from now. But friends, as I was traveling down the Ganges River on a boat and the dirty waters of the Ganges that was so deeply polluted both by material pollution and spiritual pollution, as we were floating through the Ganges going to the next village, I was reminded that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and restores all things and renews Eden, and brings about the consummation of his kingdom, the very dirty waters of the Ganges will sparkle clean again. But that's just a picture of what the Lord Jesus has done for his people. Dirty, filthy rebels who have uh, come into enmity against God and have made themselves filthy and polluted against God have been made sparklingly clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, We went back in 2013, and ever since, I have never felt 
closer to Queen Esther? How can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, you have avoided destruction. You have avoided a calamity that was coming for you. And all of us, whether we pay attention or not, we have ethnic kindred. So you may not be a beautifully brown-skinned Indian like my, my daughters, but maybe you come from the French peoples, the German peoples, the Irish, the Scottish, the English, the, Ghan, uh, the Ghanaian, the Italian, or if you're from Italy and or apparently the Sicilians don't actually identify as being a part of Italy, if you're Sicilian, if you're Polish, if you have Nigerian ancestry, if you have Swedish ancestry, if you're Monacan Indian or Cherokee, whether you're Portuguese or you're Spanish, you have a kindred. Now, it's common for us to, uh, in our culture, in in our day and age, to kind of avoid talking about ethnicity and to uh, just not talk about that. But the Bible doesn't do that. Esther did not just forget her ethnic heritage. She recognized that her own people were facing calamity and destruction. Brothers and sisters, our kin face calamity and destruction If our kin and the people of our ethnic heritage do not know Jesus Christ, there is a calamity and destruction that is coming that no military power can overcome. There is no amount of economic prowess that can overcome the wrath of God. Friends, I am a deeply uh, loving American citizen, but the American experiment will one day come to an end. But the kingdom of God will extend forever. And every tongue and tribe and people will give praise to God. And many of them will not look like us. They will not sound like us. They will have come from a world where they have eaten food that does not taste like the food that we've eaten. They might have eaten food that I've eaten. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, you have avoided calamity. How? How have you avoided destruction that was yours rightly? When you were in rebellion against God. Do you think about that? Do you consider the fact that destruction for, our, for us, for God's people, has been averted? Brothers and sisters, the only way destruction and calamity and the wrath of God has been averted is through the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has made Him being holy and just and righteous and beautiful. God has made all people in his image. To look like him. To know him. To love him. To act like him. To worship him. And to enjoy him. But what have we done? Genesis chapter 3 is clear. We have all sinned. We have all sinned against God and cut ourselves off from him. We have rebelled against God. We have looked at the most beautiful object in all of the universe and said, no thanks. You're not enough. You're not that beautiful. I prefer this. Brothers and sisters, we have all rebelled against a good God. And a good God can only respond to sin not by overlooking it. In his holiness, he must 
punish all sin. In his justness, he must respond to sin. In his righteousness, God will not simply tolerate sin as if it's totally okay. I can just ignore it. No. God must punish sin. The wages of our sin is death. Many of us have built wonderful lives and reputations and careers and our resumes are worthy of envy. But friends, the wages that we have earned in our sin and a rebellion against a good and holy God is death. We have earned and we have rightly deserved the punishment of God. But friends, have you considered the fact that you have yet to taste the wrath of God? You have yet to be punished by the Lord? Friends, in his great love, God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, who lived a perfect life of obedience. As God and man, yet without sin, he perfectly obeyed God. He is like us as a man and so unlike us in his sinless perfection. And not only did he live a perfect life, he died the very death you and I deserve to die. He took upon himself the punishment that we have earned for our sin. The curse that we rightly deserve to bear, he bore it on the cross. And not only did he bear it on the cross, dying in our place as a substitute, he rose again. He demonstrated in his resurrection that he has satisfied God the Father's wrath against us. He has assuaged his wrath against us. He has taken every last drip of God's righteous anger against our sin. And he has demonstrated that God is satisfied. He is satisfied in the life and the work of his Son. And by faith in Christ, God is satisfied in you. Not because you're a little bit cleaner than you used to be. Not because you're a little less sinful than you used to be. Not because today you have a little bit more of a clearer idea of what your sin is like than it was last week. No. God is satisfied in his people because his people by faith are united to his son. His righteousness is, doesn't just cover a little part of us. His righteousness covers all of us. Our sin was imputed, given over to Jesus. So we are no longer just naked, but we have been adorned by the very righteousness of Jesus on us now. Friends, have you considered how we have avoided calamity and destruction? Brothers and sisters, there are people all over the world, and I know Esther chapter, or chapter 8 is not about missions and international work. I, I, I totally get that, but all of the Bible is about Jesus, and so all of the Bible talks about what Jesus is about, and so we as the people of Jesus should be all about Jesus. Friends, if you're French, German, Irish, Scottish, etc., etc., if you have a cool German middle name that should be your first name, you can ask the same question Esther asked. How can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? But we have to move on with the rest of Esther's story. So look with me at verse 7. 
Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hand on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So there's an interesting uh, uh, moment in this scene. Uh, king Xerxes uh, appears to be saying, yeah, I've washed my hands clean of this. I've already done what I need to do. Haman is dead. It's gone. He's, his, he's over. But you can go do what you need to do. But at the same time, he seems to be demonstrating, hey, Queen Esther, here's a quick little lesson in Persian civics. The, uh, uh, the edict written in the name of the king and sealed with his ring can't be revoked. But you can go write a new one to counteract the previous one. So here again is another stunning reversal. Right? In chapter 3, verse 10, Xerxes gave the approval to Haman to wipe out the Jews. But now we see a reversal. He gives the approval to Esther and Mordecai to write a new edict. So look with me in verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. To the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. Brothers and sisters, did you see that little hint right there? From India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. Friends, the Persian Empire was a metropolitan empire. Do you know what it looked like? In one very real sense, it looked like the end of Revelation. There were so many different peoples involved in the Persian Empire. And in the universal church, there are brothers and sisters all over from all time, from India to Ethiopia, from these 127 provinces and more. Let me get back to verse 10. And he wrote, it, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Verse 12, on one day, Throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Just as they were summoned in chapter 3, verse 12, to write Haman's edict. So again, the scribes were summoned here to write now Mordecai's. Whereas previously, the Jews were the targets to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated, now Mordecai's decree said the Jews were permitted by the king to not only defend themselves, but they too 
could destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Remember in Titanic when uh, uh, the, everybody's like boarding the lifeboats and uh, it's women and children first, women and children first. The idea is that women and children are going to be, they're the most vulnerable on the ship and they're also going to be able to extend uh, life. Right? And so it is right for men to sacrifice their lives for the women and children. But then that despicable Billy Zane character comes in and he puts that hood over himself and he jumps on board. And, you know, at least one woman died because his character went on the lifeboat. Right? And this section of the story and this edict is uh, basically mirroring Haman's edict. Right? And what's interesting is uh, Mordecai is using the exact same language that Haman used. And the vulnerable of the Persians were uh, to be included. And not only that, but Mordecai told his people, the king has also allowed you to not only do this, uh, but you are also permitted to plunder their goods. The news of Mordecai's letter would need to travel fast. And so in a world without the power of the internet... Mordecai's letter was carried by the couriers, and there's an interesting detail added in here. Riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service. So if you've ever read Lord of the Rings, think Gandalf riding Shadowfax. Right? So the, the premier horses came from the royal stud, the, the prime horse of the king. Speed was of the essence if the Jewish people were going to survive. But in Mordecai's edict... There's a sense of darkness and tension and fear and anxiety that we cannot quickly overlook. But look with me now in verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So, here we are again with another reversal. So do you remember in chapter 4, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. The reversal. Now Mordecai is no longer in sackcloth and ashes, Now he emerges gloriously from the king's presence. He's dressed in royal robes of blue and white. He has a great golden crown placed on his head. He has a robe of fine linen and purple. The the imagery would look as if to say, there is no need to mourn or to cry. There is no need to be sad anymore. Our great hero Mordecai, look at how he's dressed. Now, Whereas the city, here's another reversal, whereas the city was thrown into confusion from Haman's edict, now the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. 
Do you remember when Haman and the king sat down to drink? The entire city was confused as to what was going on. But now they are rejoicing. Whereas previously there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes, now there was gladness and joy among the Jews, even a feast and a holiday. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life, if you have not experienced this yet, I am certain that you will, but the Christian life is a story of suffering to glory. This story is, a, is but a picture that shows that God's people will experience suffering in a world marred by sin, evil, and wickedness. But there is coming a day when there will be no more mourning. There will be no more sadness or tears. There will only be feasting. There is coming a day when God's people will no longer suffer. They will no longer shout with bitter and loud cries of pain. But they will shout with exulting and joy. And we're not there yet. But if you are in Christ, your destination has already been secured. If you are in Christ, there is no way that you are going to get lost on the path to the great city of Zion. If you are in Christ, the world may lead you to feel pangs of hunger, but the king will welcome you in to his table with a glorious feast where the food will never run out or expire. There is great hope for God's people, even when there looks as if there is only darkness to be found all around us. Now, there is a very important observation to consider in chapter 8. So we're seeing the reversal and the changing of fortunes, if you will, for the Jewish people. But as one commentator pointed out, saying, we should notice how much of our behavior is driven by perceptions about what the future holds rather than by reality. The actual fortune of the Jews did not change significantly throughout the story. Their livelihoods were not ruined by Haman's edict, nor were their futures radically transformed by the new edict, which simply gave them the right to defend themselves and their property. Yet, they had thought that their lives were threatened by Haman, and so they fasted and mourned. Now, they felt that threat to have lifted, and so they responded with joy. Yet the empire in which they lived was no better a place at the end of the book than it was in the beginning. Friends, couldn't the same be said of us? In the midst of difficulties and trying situations, how often do our emotional responses swing wildly? When we receive bad news, how often do we think, oh, this is the end of the world. And then moments later when we receive good news, ah, there's joy and peace again. Brothers and sisters, I think often what our difficult circumstances show is our great need to learn to trust God as his invisible hand of providence works through all of our circumstances, even when we cannot understand why he is allowing what is happening to happen to us. We may never get the answer to the question, why? But what would we do, dear brothers and sisters, if we did have such an answer anyway? What would we do? 
Perhaps God intends to withhold the answer to the question, why, by giving you the answer to the question, who? Who will be our help in the day of trouble? Who can we trust to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death? Who can we look to who promises to work all things together for our good, even when all around us it seems there is nothing good to be used? I encourage you, brothers and sisters, this afternoon to read the first five verses of Psalm 71, where the psalmist writes, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. Does that sound familiar familiar at all? Verse 5. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. He may withhold the question, why? The answer to the question, why? But he has, brothers and sisters, given you the answer to the question, who? Who will be our help in the day of trouble? We could spend all morning on uh, just that one question, but let's move on now to our second scene in Esther chapter 9. Our second scene being a spectacular victory. Starting in verse 1, now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. A stunning reversal. This is not the picture that we were anticipating. This is not the scene that Haman was anticipating. Haman understood that once the machine of the empire set its target on the Jewish people, they would be wiped out. But here we see God showing a stunning reversal. In a sense, he is using the weak to shame the strong. Whereas the empire once set its target on the Jewish people, now we see in verse 3, all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. So what we see in this scene is uh, an, an extravagant reversal. So whereas the Persian bureaucracy was previously utilized to destroy the Jews, now we see that same bureaucracy, uh, 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 what's the phrase called? Jumping the bandwagon? Now we see that same bureaucracy supporting the Jewish efforts to defend themselves. But friends, pay close attention. Because nowhere in the text do we see this bureaucracy helping the Jews because it was the right thing or the just thing to do. Rather... It was out of fear of Mordecai and his great fame 
that the Persians decided that they would help the Jewish people. Do you notice a difference between the character of Esther and the character of the bureaucrats? Esther was willing to risk losing her life for her people, but the bureaucrats were only willing to support them out of fear and self-preservation. Verse 6, in Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Erisai and Eridai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. Again, very important details being shown here. So in the city, we're shown that the Jewish people are a force to be reckoned with. Not only that, we're given this very interesting detail that the ten sons of Haman have also been killed. So not only is Haman dead, not only are the Persian enemies who are attacking the Jews dead in the city, but so are the sons of Haman, all ten. Now, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Remember earlier in Mordecai's edict, he said, you can uh, do as you please and defend yourself against all who would attack you, women and children included, and you are permitted by the king to plunder their goods. Notice, when the Jews had the strength and the overwhelming ability to defeat their enemies and to take their plunder, they laid no hands on it. And what's very interesting here is nothing has gone according to Haman's plan. Rather than boasting in the destruction of the Jewish people and Mordecai specifically, Haman himself has been killed. His greatness has been given to Mordecai. No one could stand against the Jews as they defended themselves. And finally, all of Haman's sons have been killed. In a very real way, the very memory of Haman is being blotted out through his death and the death of his sons. In a very real way, the promise that the Lord made in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when he promised that the uh, memory of the Amalekites would be blotted out, you're, we're seeing that now. Friends, this small little detail goes to show us that God's promises will indeed be fulfilled. Every single promise God has made will stand and will be fulfilled. The job that we have as his people is not to tell the Lord how he is to fulfill his promises. We are not the instruction givers. We are not the Lord's teachers. This brief little detail goes to show God will fulfill his promises to his people, and he will do so in a way that his people could not even imagine. Suddenly, these quiet Jews became a force to be reckoned with. And when the report came to the king, the number of those killed in the city... Shock and astonishment overtook King Xerxes. We have seen King Xerxes to be really focused on himself and satisfying his own pleasures. He's not really been a king who is focused on the details and the minutiae of running the empire. He's kind of let the bureaucrats kind of do the thing while he's just feasted and, and, and enjoyed the pleasures of his power. So he now hears... That 500 men have been killed in the city. So he's thinking, if they've killed 500 men just in the citadel alone, then how many more have fallen in all 127 provinces? He is now paying attention to what is happening. Another stunning reversal from what we've seen. Now, 
We'll look at verse 16 next week, but I'm going to just kind of dip into that cookie jar for a second because in verse 16, the author records that the rest of the Jews in the king's provinces, all 127, they also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This is part of next week's sermon. I'm just going to give it to you now. When Haman told King Xerxes that it is not to the king's prophet to even tolerate the people of the Jews whom he did not uh, uh, identify, the Hebrew idiom there actually said, it is not to the king's prophet to give them rest. But in God's mysterious providence that they could not understand or see, what does the author record? That the people of God got relief from their enemies. Another reversal that's not part of this week's sermon, and that's not part of my manuscript, so we're going to continue. That's next week. So here we now see again, as we uh, close uh, our uh, portion of Esther chapter 9, another episode of the king willing to grant the queen's request. Verse 13, and Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Friends, The story of Esther up to this point brings us to a very troubling scene. Haman's edict called for the Jews to be eliminated in one day. Mordecai's edict allowed for the Jews to defend themselves on that same day. Now, with Esther having the king's favor, who was offering to satisfy any request that she would make, did you notice what her request was? If it pleased the king... Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. There is really no way to get around what the author of Esther is recording in this scene. Esther's request was twofold. Let the attack from the Jews extend one more day and hang the sons of Haman as a public display for the people. This is a graphic scene that we find ourselves. And in God's providence, all of our children are in the room with us. So how are we to understand such a violent scene? Uh, One commentator, uh, Karen Jobes, provided very helpful commentary. The biblical Esther is evaluated almost universally in negative terms for requesting a second day of killing. The author makes no attempt to exonerate the queen or to justify her request. Now, the Bible is remarkable, Jobs continues, in revealing the darker side of God's chosen leaders, often just at their shining moment. King David's adultery is a similar example of a story whose presence in the Bible is difficult to explain unless it was widely known to be true. His adultery occurred at the pinnacle of his remarkable military success and prosperity. Even today, many leaders fall at the height of their achievements 
If the second day of killing happened because of a darker side to Esther's character, the author does not attempt to vindicate her. Whether or not Esther was justified in extending the killing a second day, the perennial failure of Israel's greatest leaders to war against moral and spiritual darkness without engaging in sin themselves suggests that no one is worthy to wage true holy war in God's name. God's strategy against sin and evil was awaiting the perfect warrior who could execute divine justice with clean hands and a pure heart. His name is Jesus. And it's in this scene that the story ends for our time this morning. So, what does this story teach us? What does this story show the people of God? Well, kids, if you've been wondering what the main idea of the sermon is, it is simply this, that in God's mysterious and mind-boggling providence, he will defeat all of his enemies and bring victory for his people. In God's mysterious and mind-boggling providence, he will defeat all of his enemies and bring victory for his people. So, when we read this story up to this point, what comes to our minds? Are we impressed by the Jews' victory? Are we happy with Haman's demise? Do we look at the graphic scenes and think, ha hope they make a movie out of this. This is so cool. I think there are more significant matters for us to consider, such as, what is our plan for deliverance? Who will deliver us? How will we experience and celebrate a spectacular victory? If we have rebelled against a great king whose wrath we deserve, who will go before our great king to intercede for us so that we will not face destruction? Who will go? How will we be saved? As one author said, how can any of us stand in the presence of a holy God when we ourselves have rebelled against God in thought, word, and deed? Who will deliver us from the edict of death that still stands against us in the heavenly court? What we need is an Esther of our own, someone who will put aside personal interests and safety and risk dignity, honor, and even life itself in order to plead our case before God the great king. And such a mediator is ours in Jesus Christ. He left the glories of heaven and took on the form of a servant, not simply humiliating himself, but going all the way to death for us. Long before the day in which he will don a blood-soaked robe to go and wreak vengeance on his enemies, he first soaked robes in his own blood to protect those who are his people. God put his own son under the curse of holy war and cut him off because of our sin. As the prophet Isaiah predicted, he had no family or descendants of his own. He was bruised for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities, dishonored for our glory, and plunged into darkness that we who are rebellious sinners might see the light. This is the grand reversal to which all the reversals in Esther's story point. Up to this point, 
The Jews were victorious conquerors who defeated their enemies. But friends, this theme of victory for God's people in Esther's story is more fully captured in the New Testament. Consider how in the book of Revelation, the king on the white horse delivers a decisive end to all his enemies and a marriage feast is prepared for the lamb and his bride. But before that final victory comes, brothers and sisters, tomorrow happens to be Monday. And tomorrow we will need again a fresh injection of hope and joy and peace. We will again need to be reminded that in Jesus Christ we have already tasted a victory that is to come. We will need to be reminded of God's promises that he has fulfilled and will fulfill, such as the promise that he has made in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. In the safe refuge of Jesus Christ, We have been promised that we are more than conquerors. In God's victory-delivering providence, there is nothing that you and I will face tomorrow or the day after or in the years to come that can separate us from the powerful love of God. But don't take my word for it. Take the Lord's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor the things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is God's promise to his church, dear brothers and sisters. And God is not in the business of failing to keep his promises. Brothers and sisters, in the safe refuge of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can rest in the fact that Jesus intercedes before God the Father for you. He has given his life for you. He has taken upon himself your sin and given his own righteousness to you for you. He has promised forgiveness and eternal peace with God for you. He has promised that there is a feast that awaits for you. He has promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will always be with you. He will return again for you. He has promised that he will present you before the Father spotless and blameless with no blemish or wrinkle so that you may enjoy the pleasures of God's presence forever and he will keep that promise for you. There is no edict, nor will there ever be, that can revoke God's settled decree for us. As Ian Dugan said, our sorrows and pains will soon be forgotten. Our fasting swallowed up in feasting. Our darkness turned forever to glorious light. In Jesus Christ alone have his people's fortunes been changed eternally.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news. God, we thank you that we can rejoice. God, we thank you that there is victory that has gone before us, that has gone ahead of us, and that is secured for us. We thank you, Lord, that we not only stand in the promise of victory, uh, but we revel in it. Not because we have earned or merited this victory in our own strength, but Lord, you have secured victory for your own people in your own mysterious and mind-boggling providence that we could not muster and, and, and construe ourselves. You have brought good news and victory for your people in your Son. And today and tomorrow and for all the days of our lives, we will give you thanks and praise and the honor that you were due. Father, it is because of Jesus Christ that we can say together, Lord, we love you. It's in his name we now pray. Amen.